Are you busy scrounging for the bones of your old self? Are you in the endless cycle of commit, fail, repent, recommit? This behavior-based cycle is not what he died for. God's grace is all about relationship, not rules. Don't waste another minute. The slate is clean. Welcome to the new podcast series, Grace Walk, featuring Pastor Dave Roberts. I grew up in a church that uh, at the front of the church there was an altar. It was a place where people came and prayed. I mean, you could pray other places, obviously. Um, But I grew up thinking that the altar was this special place. It was at the end of services where um, there would be given a, what, altar call, who people who wanted to respond to the message would come and kneel and pray and get things right with God. And... uh, I have to tell you, growing up, I visited the altar often. Um, I would hear a sermon on the expectations that uh, God had for my obedience and my failure to live up to those expectations. And I'd hear the sermon and I would head for the altar. I would repent of my sin and I would recommit my efforts to live a more obedient life to God's Word. And over time, you know what I noticed? I noticed that there was a cycle going on in my life. And I guess the the way I would describe it is this. It's a cycle of commit, fail, repent, recommit. Am I the only one that's ever done this? This just played out over and over and over. And I would often wonder, I would often wonder, is this the way it's supposed to be? Is this Christianity? And I think most Christians, many at least, at some point in their journey, reach the conclusion that living the Christian life is going to be this cycle of struggle where they try so hard to be good for God, meet with failure, recommit their lives to God, try harder, fail again, recommit. It's a never-ending, behavior-based cycle that many times Christians just say, well, I guess this is the way it is. And yet, (laughs) you can't get away from passages in the Scripture that talk about life in Jesus is the abundant life, right? Right? I always say, how's that going for you? It's the victorious life. It's the life that makes us more than conquerors, it says. It's the life that can do all things through Christ. And they hear, they hear messages like that. They read scriptures like that. And uh, instead of being built up in their faith, yes, that's me, they just feel guilty because that's not their experience. And they go to church and they see all these wonderful people that seem to be doing it right. (laughs) And they conclude, I'm just not a very good Christian. I need to try harder. Today we start a seven-week series called Grace Walk. And it's a series on, and get this right, 
It is a series on the gospel. This is the good news of God's grace for us. And, and yes, he saves us by his grace, but he also sustains us by his grace. As we continually receive the abundance, the victory that is his life in us, you'll hear me say things like, our walk with him is all about trusting and not trying. It's all about relationship, not rules. How many Christians today believe that Christianity is obeying the rules of the Bible? Good luck. And I think through this series, as you begin to digest the scandalous nature of grace, that, that you really have been let off the hook. You realize that, right? You really have been completely eternally forgiven. <laughs> you have been given a brand new identity. You've been adopted, accepted, cherished, and loved by the creator of the universe. You may discover that God is completely different than you thought he was. This series will center around seven truth statements one for each week. And I'm going to give you scriptures that explain these statements throughout the, uh, the seven weeks. And um, I have to tell you this right up front, that when you see these seven statements, many of them are going to sound wrong. They're going to sound wrong the first time you hear them because they don't line up with the way the world works. But that's the point. Grace does not line up with how the world works. The way Jesus works in our lives doesn't line up with the way the world works and its systems. So you ready for the first one? Well, ready or not. <laughs> Improving your behavior will not give you victory in the Christian life. Amen. Let me ask this question. Have you ever thought that if you could just be a little bit more, well, let's put it this way. Have you ever thought if you could just sin less and be nicer to people, you'd be a better Christian? If I could just get that. Now, no, no, don't get me wrong. Would it, be good, would it be a good thing for you to sin less? Yeah. Would it be a good thing for you to be a little bit nicer? I don't know, pretty nice, yeah. But how do you get there? That's the question. So here's another controversial statement. This is just, this is not number two or anything. That's next week. This is just thrown in for today, okay? If you want to sin less and be a nicer person, you need to, you need to stop focusing on sinning less and being nicer. Can I explain that? <laughs> At least you're with me. I like that. In order to explain it, I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis, the second chapter, the seventh verse. Then the Lord formed man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Okay, you get what's happening here, right? Here's Adam. 
just been created. And immediately, this is what happens. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the first thing God did after he created Adam is plant a garden and two specific trees that he names. One was the tree of life, and the other, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then a few verses down, God does this, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it, meaningful labor. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. That's pretty ominous, isn't it? And I think one of the things we have to understand, this is not the tree of evil. It's the tree of knowing what is good and what is bad. And what I've come to believe in my own walk with Jesus is that, uh, that God didn't even want us to know there was such a thing as good and evil. As long as we were eating from the tree of life, this just doesn't matter. Receiving life from him would be this automatic protection from evil and natural fruitful and produce natural fruitful goodness. And the reason this follows right on the heels of the creation is this. The two trees represent two distinct systems of living. You live from one or the other. God creates man. Then he says there's two ways to live. One is life and one is death. And if you think about the names of the two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, think of that. I, I think sometimes we think of the fall as this choice between good and evil, and uh, I suppose a case could be made for that because the, the, God said, don't eat from this tree, which they violated, but there's great meaning in how he named them. The mistake, we think, is that Eve had this uh, uncontrollable desire for evil, and then she passed it on to Adam. But again, it's not called the tree of evil. Satan had convinced her that she should know what was good and what was evil, just like God knew. Satan convinced her that she should know she could avoid, if she knew what evil was, then she could avoid it. <laughs> and if she knew what good was, then she could focus on that. And if, if you know, Eve, what is good and what is evil, then you can live a God-pleasing life lie. What's incredible from the story of this creation is that God didn't want that for them. He didn't want them to know what was good and evil. He wanted them to rest in Him and gain all their resources from living in Him. He didn't want, him, he didn't want them to enter the whole system of behavior-oriented, performance-driven morality where they're trying hard to do good things and trying hard to not do bad things. But they ate, didn't they? They ate of the tree and their eyes were open to this whole system of behavior-based validity. They died spiritually. It was more like, now will 
we'll do this. We don't need you. They chose to depend on themselves to live a good life instead of God. And sin had its fertile ground on which to grow and flourish. I believe it wholeheartedly. There's only two ways to live. And they're represented by these two trees in the garden. If you study the, uh, the, the multiple worldviews out there today, they all live from the wrong tree, except Christianity. Humanism, Buddhism, Islam, Marxism, the New Age, they all have developed a system of righteousness based on how well you perform. If you're good enough, if you perform well enough, there is this payoff, this redemption, this, this position of authority. There's this respect that you get. Christianity, on the other hand, we used to admit right up front, we don't have what it takes, right? We don't have what it takes. <laughs> we, we can't be righteous. We're totally incapable. We're needy, helpless creatures without Him. We get that, right? We need goodness given to us, and we call that grace. We can't produce it ourselves. So let's look at these two trees a little bit more in depth. The tree of life. This just represents Jesus. We know this because Jesus said of himself that only in him could life be found. A few scriptures. John eleven twenty five. Jesus talking to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. What a bold statement, right? Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Then the night before his crucifixion, talking with his disciples, Jesus said to the Philip who asked the question, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, verse 4, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Now, if I ask you today, do you want life as opposed to death? Do you want spiritual life as opposed to spiritual death? If you want spiritual life, Jesus is your only answer. There's not plan B. There's not another route. He is the only choice. The great, awesome, magnificent thing is that this life is it's available and it's just given to you. You don't have to, you don't have to measure up to some standard expectation. I think of it this way. Imagine a beggar cowering in the corner, holding up his cup, hoping to receive a penny from a passerby. And instead of getting a pittance, he is ushered into a mansion of abundance and provision. You know that's in the Bible, right? It's the very first beatitude. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, which is what, that's what the picture means in the Beatitude. If you look at the original Greek, it's the beggar who just can't even look at the person, just holding up, hoping, hoping, hoping to get something. In other words, I have no value, I have no merit, I have nothing on which to stand that you would give me something. I'm completely needy. And what does he get in return for his neediness? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
You don't get there any other way. It's the needy, the beggar, the one who places no confidence in himself must receive everything from another that receives the kingdom of heaven, the tree of life. But what happens is that uh, at some point in our lives, we think we've got something to offer. Uh, we're no longer the beggar in the corner. We're, we stand up and uh, we want to carry on a conversation because we have now what it takes. The moment you stand to your feet and think you have something to offer that you are no longer the needy beggar is the moment you forfeit grace given abundance and the struggle begins. Because that's the moment that you started eating from the other tree. Right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This tree represents the law. It is knowing that there is good and there is evil, there's right and there's wrong. I need to do more good, I need to do less evil. I'm going to govern my life by that, try hard. When you live from this tree, it's always about who's right, it's always about who's wrong. It's always about expectations. It's always about obedience. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says this, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And when you think about it, the whole world, the whole sinful world is built around this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, isn't it? When we're toddlers, you remember back then, don't you? When we're toddlers, we are applauded and rewarded for doing right, and we are scolded or worse when we do evil. By the way, which one needs to be taught? Which one is, which one is already known? You, have to teach, you don't have to teach a kid how to be bad, right? They know that. They get that. It's, it's inside. I always say toddlers are the best evidence for the sinful nature. <laughs> you get to school and you get report cards evaluating your performance, both academically and you get conduct reports, right? How are you behaving? We get a job and at least once a year we're given a performance review to determine if the company is going to keep us another year or not. And if at any time in your life, if you're not performing well, you are spanked, flunked, or fired. <laughs> And it's just the way the world operates, isn't it? It knows you can't be trusted on your own to be good. So we have external consequences that have been inserted to keep you from being bad. Is anybody here familiar with this system? We've grown up in it. It's the way the world operates. And lately, I've mentioned things that will happen in the end times, and it's all about this tree run amok. It's all about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's all about control, the mark of the beast, the one world government. These things are coming, and it's all about behavior control. The coming tribulation will see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil operating on a global level. Well, let me ask the question. Has the church itself ever used a behavior-based system, the wrong tree system, to disciple people? I guess I'll say yes, it has. 
Bringing people under conviction for their failures is an awesome strategy that produces great dividends for an organization, including the church. Guilt can drive people to give more money, attend more often, sign up to volunteer to ease their guilt. It's based on their performance. Folks, you just need to be better. And a lot of times it just, it just pours over into the way they live their Christian life. It's, it's, it's the same way. When their willpower is great and their obedience is high, they feel on top of the world. They lay their head down on the pillow at night and they look back over the day and assessing their sin output for the day. <laughs> Adding them up and they go, man, I had more righteousness than sin today. It's a good day. Uh-oh, when they have more righteousness than sin, then they say, I did well today, which is what? Called pride, which is a sin. Uh-oh. And when they do sin, when they have bad days, they crater and they double down on, well, I've got to do better. I've got to try harder. I'm going to read more scripture. I'm going to pray for 15 more minutes tomorrow, and I'm going to sign up for more Bible studies and accountability groups at church. I've got to get this done. The problem is that even if those tactics have some success, they still feel no closer to God. They're still alone spiritually trying to do this on their own because they're eating life from the wrong tree. What they're really trying to do is get their flesh to live holy. Something it is just not capable of. They're trying to live a life they were never created to live. Romans 8, 6 says this, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Do Christians sometimes try to live the Christian life out of their flesh? Whew. It says the mindset on. This, it, 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 this doesn't mean your mind is on sinning. It means that your mind is on what your flesh can do. And we are to give our minds, our attention, our focus to the Spirit of God. We, we, we move our minds off of ourselves and our abilities and our efforts and go back to being the needy one who's looking to the Spirit for moment-by-moment moment empowerment. So let me ask you a question. When you read Scripture, well, can you read Scripture from a flesh focus? <laughs> you read Scripture. What am I supposed to do? Give me answers. Or is it a spirit focus? How does Jesus want to open the Scripture to me to reveal himself and his grace to me that I may walk in the things that he is doing in my life today? I love this passage in 2 Corinthians 4. Look what it says. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted 
but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. We have a treasure. We have the very life of God, the living Holy Spirit. And this treasure of heaven, this treasure of eternity has been placed in these earthen vessels. And another way of saying that word is uh, into our little clay pots. God's surpassing greatness shines through our clay pots today. Our bodies, these humble, headed-to-death earth suits. <laughs> you know your body's still dying, right? Your spirit is eternal. You've been given a new spirit in Christ Jesus. But it's been placed into something that's still headed towards death. It hasn't been fully redeemed yet. It hasn't been fully transformed yet as your spirit has. But one day those two things are going to match up. Your body's going to be changed. Amen. <laughs> But for right now, we just have the eternal treasure in these little earth suits, these clay pots. Some might even say crack pots, but I'm not going to say that. Okay. It's a beautiful, glorious treasure. It used to be that what was in us matched what is outside us here, what, what is visible. It was dying too. It was, headed, it was living in death, Scripture tells us. But when Jesus gave us his life, he removed the old soil, amen? He planted a brand new plant. He uprooted that thing. He put it to death. He put to death the old us, removed it, gave us himself to shine his glory through our humble little earthen clay pots of a body. The old me... The guy trying to behave right in order to be validated, the guy striving to find significance through his good deeds, that guy's dead, <laughs> uprooted. And so it doesn't make any sense for me to keep trying to work with him, to try to get him to straighten up. He doesn't have the ability. Why? Because he's dead. Michael Wells, I love the way he puts it. The day you asked Christ into your life, he became your life, and your old life was crucified. However, you have been trying to improve a life that is dead. No wonder you're filled with anxiety. <laughs> For the dead you is not improving, helping, or assisting in the human experience. So stop making trips to the cemetery... <laughs> to dig up the dry bones of a dead man in the hope that you can improve him. You have been crucified with Christ, therefore recognize the burial. Stop trying to improve, accept your death and burial, and turn for help 
only to the life within you, which is Christ's life, the only life that has lived on earth and overcome. Improving your behavior will not give you victory in the Christian life because Jesus is your victory. For about 30 years of my Christian life, I lived from the wrong tree, wishing I could be a better Christian. I would push away the guilt that constantly was there, realizing there was nothing I could do to be better. I had given it my best try. And then I began to hear and understand what grace was all about. I remember a time early in my ministry here at this church. You know, I've been here 20 years. I got a lot of stories. And I was, I, I, there was this time, and I don't know, we were in about four or five years, in, uh, and I was seeking some answers. The church had grown, and, and that was good, 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 and it, it, it presented new challenges that were actually just draining me. Some people would say I was getting burned out, and I knew it. So I said, i got to get this figured out. So I went away on a personal retreat by myself for a whole week. I was going to get it worked out with God. He was going to give me the answers. My goal on this retreat was to hear from God what he wanted me to do. And a critical moment occurred in my life that week. I was crying out for, for direction to God. I would just keep saying, Lord, I just, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I love this church, and uh, I know that you've put me here, and, uh, and yet it's, it's killing me. So just tell me what to do. You ever done that? And you know what he said to me? He said, I love you. I know that, God. Come on. I just blew it off. I mean, that's a theology we all understand, right? God loves us. Got it! I said, tell me what to do, please. And he just kept repeating over and over and over in my spirit, I love you. You're my son. I love you. I love you more than you're going to ever know. I love you so much. Just look at, the, look at my hands. Look at my feet. I love you. You know, I finally said, I get it. It's not about the church, is it? Mm -mm. It's not about my ability to pastor a growing church, is it? Mm -mm. My identity is not wrapped up in how well I'm doing, is it? No. Or my ministry or my effort. My identity is that I've been given the very life of God. 
that loves me. He is my life. I mean, I love you, but you're, he, not you, him. You know what I mean? And because he loves me, I can love you. And he just wants to bless me over and over and over with more and more grace, grace, grace. And out of that intimate connection with Jesus flows direction. Fruitfulness. Righteousness. From the intimate relationship with Jesus begins to flow the life I had always tried so hard to live. And I didn't have to try. He just says, here, let me. (laughs) This may sound like something I don't really need to say, but I think I do. The Christian life is all about Jesus. The Christian life is all about Jesus. It is. It's not your personal piety. It's not about your daily sin count. (laughs) In fact, it's not about you at all. It's him. And Jesus said it himself. He says, if you remain in me, then my life is going to grow fruit on your little branch. He says, I will give you everything you need. I'll resource your life for everything. Just keep eating my fruit. Keep eating from this tree. Stop trying so hard. Start trusting Stop earning and start resting. The life he gives is empowerment, it's enjoyment, it's peace, it's righteousness because it's him. And that's what he wants for you. That's what he is for you. Do you know today that God just wants to bless you and bless you and bless you and bless you? Do you know as a Christian you've been adopted, accepted, redeemed, purchased? Do you know today that God is for you? I think sometimes Christians think he's against me. God is for you. He may be different than you thought he was. We do hope that you've enjoyed this episode today. If you'd like to learn more about Grace Bible Church in Georgetown, Texas, please visit us at gbcgt.org. Many blessings from our church family to yours.